BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, May 22nd, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. We both have children. How hard did you struggle to name your child? <laughs> wow, I thought that was going to start in a completely different direction. And we were going to talk about how hard it was for me to have children versus you to have children. And I was going to say it was probably harder for me, Kishore. But anyway, <laughs> setting that aside, um, it's early in the morning. Um, <clears throat> setting that aside, you know, remarkably, it was. It, we thought it was going to be a lot harder than it ended up being. Um, and part of that was because uh, we lost my dad when I was pregnant, and we decided to name him in part after my dad. So that was, you know, that that's sort of how the name came along. Um, but, you know... That's really sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Did you think about the economic consequences of the name, though? I didn't. <laughs> so there's been a number of studies that suggest the name of a child may have impact on career path, uh, choice in uh, school, uh, just overall success. Well, do you remember we talked to Tracy Mann, and she actually mentioned that there was this finding that if your initials spelt, spelt something positive, um, like, I don't know, I can't think of anything other than hot at the moment, I don't know if his initials spell hot, um, that, that, that actually made you live longer compared to if, it's, if your initials spelt like B-A-D. Now, that's just a correlation effect. Actually, the evidence that uh, we're talking about actually shows that uh, names can be tied to like economic status uh, and neighborhoods that you live in, which actually has a bigger indicator of, of the school that you end up in and your overall economic success on a macro level. But that twisted question, does a baby's name actually impact how successful they are? That's the kind of question that Freakonomics tackles in their podcast all the time. And this week, it's I had on Stephen Dubner from Freakonomics because it's been 10 years since the show started, and they have a new book out called When to Rob a Bank, 
spoiler alert, the morning is a better time to rob a bank if you're trying to get more money out. Uh, and I talked with Dubner about uh, some of his favorite stories, how they try to translate academic papers, especially economic papers, which are remarkably dense and difficult to decipher, uh, to be approachable for a wide audience. And it was kind of interesting to hear his perspective on how they approach problem solving, why they choose the stories they do, and some of their own personal favorites. Um, I think my favorite thing he told me to to do is that we don't quit enough. So maybe this is the end of the podcast because he just told me uh, in the interview that I should just quit. So we should we should quit. I think are we quitting? You know, I've done that before for a podcast and it turned into this podcast, which, you know, I like a lot better. So <laughs> maybe, uh, but I don't think we're ready to quit yet. I'm not ready to quit yet. Okay, that's great because everyone stay tuned for our interview today with Stephen Dumner. But first, let's see if there's anything in the news that caught your eye. Well, there was one little hashtag that caught my eye on Twitter this week. It apparently was started by astronomer Kate Clancy, whom we've had on the show. Um, She was episode 48. And we brought Kate on to talk about a number of things, including a study that she was an author on that suggested that, or that showed, I should say, that 26% of female scientists have been sexually harassed in the field, which was a remarkable number. Um, And So in some ways, it didn't surprise me that it was Kate that picked up on uh, this particular faux pas in an interview on NPR. So let me just back up a bit. If you haven't heard about this yet, uh, there is an NPR show called Joe's Big Idea that's hosted by Joe Palka. And on it, he was interviewing a Caltech astrophysicist. And they were talking about big ideas as they do on the podcast. And at one point, the astronomer said... Many scientists are, I think, secretly what I call boys with toys. And, you know, it's a pretty innocuous statement on its surface. But then Joe Palka came in with the emphasis, boys with toys. And then the astrophysicist said, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, except that you're not supposed to say that. And this, of course, set off a bit of a firestorm when Kate Clancy in particular um, started out by demonstrating how this is something that makes her angry as a female scientist. So her response to this comment um, on this show was to start this hashtag girls with toys. And uh, to, you know, what she did with this hashtag essentially is, is uploaded pictures of herself and her female colleagues with large scientific tools, uh, showing that it's not just, you know, male scientists that play with big scientific toys but that it's something that can get uh, girls involved too. There's nothing like calling multi-million dollar equipment toys to really get the funding agency super happy, I bet. But what I loved about this is you saw all of these real people um, showing off themselves in, in in their lab environment. And I thought there were some really great kind of intimate pictures. You saw a lot of images of scientists that you just wouldn't see before. I would say like the end point of this is, this is really what scientists look like is the best part about this. And I, I think it's hilarious. And you saw this across all fields. It wasn't just astronomy, which is where it started. But you saw biologists and, and chemists and physicists all come together. And I, and I think, you know, her point was made pretty clearly early on. And I kind of felt like, oh, you know, well done, Kate. I think this is going to, you know, you know the, the point has been made. And, and I kind of thought, well, you know, within a short while, it'll die. Um, but then... 
uh, Joe Palka also kind of started uh, responding to this and saying, hey, you know, I want your stories. And so I think the the end result is going to be much bigger than perhaps even Kate anticipated, which is that we're going to hear more stories about what women in the lab actually do. And my hope is that this starts to extend beyond women as well, so that if it just becomes a, a kind of viral look into what any scientist, you know, whether they be male or female, transgender, um, does in their daily life. What picture are we going to see of you? <laughs> well, you know, I, I did play with some pretty big toys uh, in graduate school and in my postdoc. I did some neuroimaging with the fMRI scanner, but I don't think we ever took any pictures of ourselves in front of the scanner. Uh, that's too bad. Well, we'll send in a picture of Indre holding her microphone. There is something. Humans are heavier than we've ever been. That's not a shock. But what we found is... Wait, that is that true? What about Neanderthals? I mean, I know we're not exactly Neanderthals, but we're a little bit Neanderthal, no? Come on, the fat guy on this side of the mic knows what... <laughs> you're looking directly at me. Oh, you know what I mean by saying that we're heavier than sure. But what's fascinating is a recent study came out of Johns Hopkins, and our bone density is much less than our ancestors. Scientists from Johns Hopkins actually went to museums and collected various ancient specimens of bones and uh, studied the geometry and density of them uh, by, you know, essentially putting them in an x-ray machine. And they found pronounced loss in leg bone strength when we shifted towards agriculture as human beings. So they saw a decline in bone density about 10,000 years ago and a further decline about 2,500 years ago at the fall of the Roman Empire. Mostly what they saw, it, it, they attribute this to, is the shift in lifestyle, is that when we were sort of more hunter-gatherer, we'd work a whole lot more, and that showed in our bones, which is kind of fascinating that uh, you can see just how our daily life is showing up in our bone density. What's funny is, is that our arms, uh, in terms of the bone structure, hasn't changed dramatically. So you can see there's a big difference between a paleolithic bone structure and who we are now. Uh, most of that stopped in medieval times, but it's fascinating to see the actual pictures and we'll put them up on our Tumblr. That's it really, you know, what I think is kind of most interesting about that is the fact that you do have this difference between arms and legs. Because I would imagine that you, you know, don't use your arms just as much as, you know, the, the decrease in the use of your legs when you shift from hunter-gatherer to um, sort of a more agricultural domesticated existence. And, you know, when I when I sort of came across that article, the first thing I thought of, too, is just, you know, this is such it's it's, again, even more evidence that we have some control over kind of our health and in some ways our longevity. So we talked to Bill Gifford about how getting to age 80 is really about lifestyle beyond age 80. It's really genetics. That's like the primary driver of longevity. Um, and you know, we know that bone density is a, is a major problem in if you as you get older, because if you don't maintain your bone density, you are more likely to get a fracture, which could even more limit your mobility. And we know that physical exercise is one thing that is has can make us, you know, healthier and live longer. Um, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's 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 remarkable to me that this isn't making more headlines and that, you know, this kind of cure for a lot of age-related diseases, which is to exercise in particular, to do um, weight-bearing exercises that might increase your bone density or at least slow the progression of, of bone density loss. You know, this, this should really be prescribed way more than it is. Well, I'm going to set a higher Fitbit goal for my four-year-old at home so he does 
live to 100. I'm going to lift my 16-month-old more often. It's too <laughs> so late that for I can us. Live. Is it really? Yeah. It's lar- I mean, we can make an impact on our, in our lifestyle, but uh, in, and uh, uh, make a difference in terms of our bone density loss. But in terms of our bone structure, we're, we're grown adults now. So it really makes an impact uh, from, from the young age. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to get my baby to the gym. <laughs> so with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with your interview with Stephen Dubner. This episode is sponsored by Privlo. Can't get a mortgage because you're self-employed? Make an uneven income or have an old credit blemish? Well, there's a new lender in town and they built a business to help you. Privlo knows that your finances are as unique as your fingerprints. And unlike regular lenders, they take a holistic view of your entire financial picture to see if you qualify for a mortgage. Apply online at privlo.com slash podcast and fill out a simple online form. You'll have a decision in hours. That's privlo.com slash podcast. And this episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from on topics ranging from politics to science to the classics. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. And Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. You just have to go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds and pick one of their 150,000 or more titles to download for free. You can even download books by our previous guest, Stephen Dubner, books like Think Like a Freak or even the classic Freakonomics itself. You can download one of these for free right now by going to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Stephen Dubner, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Kishore. Nice to be here. It's been 10 years since you started Freakonomics with Stephen Levitt, and I sort of can't believe it's been 10 years. Uh, Makes so you first feel of all, old, congratulations. It? Yeah, has it gone fast for you? Do you are you <laughs> surprised at the level of success you've achieved? So it's a bit of a yes and a bit of a no. Uh, it definitely does not seem like 10 years ago that the first book came out, but because we've been pretty active ever since, it doesn't feel like it was just, uh, you know, I went to sleep 10 years ago and woke up and it's today because the book that, you know, the first book kind of accidentally, very accidentally, not kind of, um, turned into what people began to call a brand, which I derisively avoided for many years, but now I kind of slip into it once in a while now too. And so it is a kind of a brand where we do different stuff. I mean, primarily books, but also um, Freakonomics Radio podcast and some other stuff. And so because it's a a constantly evolving uh, thing that grew out of one book, you know, a book is static, but the rest of the stuff is fairly dynamic. Um, that's what I mean. It, it it seems like a long time ago in some ways, and yet, um, you know, it definitely I remember it well. So that in that regard, it doesn't seem like ten years. That's a good sign that your memory is still intact. <laughs> the, but before the book came out, there was the blog, and really the the new book, When to Rob a Bank, is a collection of different snippets from that blog uh, over the year, which has grown to uh, how many posts now? It's T- uh, thousands yeah about point. eight thousand yeah no we we began the blog like a little bit before the book but we began the blog because we were putting out a book and honestly it began just because the webmaster 
which I don't think we call him anymore, the webmaster that we had hired to set up a website for this new book, Freakonomics. You know, we wanted it. I just wanted to have a good website for our book um, with some, you know, chapter excerpts and just the regular stuff that you do when you when you put out a book um, or at least did then. And, you know, most people still do. And I I don't I won't forget the uh, our webmaster um, who worked uh, in Winston Salem, North Carolina, and I was in in New York. I think I hadn't even met her by that point. She said, "You know this um, this site can easily have a blogging function. Um, do you want that?" And I said, "Well, I think I kind of know. You know, by then I'd been reading some blogs, but it didn't naturally seem like a good idea. But then we thought, you know, it would be fun to at least give it a try. And Levitt, Steve Levitt, my co-author, he—I don't think he'd heard of a blog by that point. And he was totally—I wouldn't say against it, but he was—it was not something he would have chosen to do. But him being a good sport, uh, went along with it. And so we started to write and we I don't know how many posts we wrote before the book came out, maybe five or ten. But then it really became a thing where readers could contact us and then we could write in response. But then we just, you know, it was like owning it was owning a printing press, literally. And I, having grown up in journalism where you need a lot of other people to make things get printed and distributed to the public. And you know, I worked at The New York Times where half the I don't know what share of all the resources, uh, 90% went into a combination of labor and printing and distribution of the hard copy. And so now here we were with a new medium where we, two guys who'd written a book that a lot of people were starting to read, we could write whenever we wanted and distribute it to anybody who wanted to get it instantly for free. And so we were really intoxicated with the medium and as you said, we just kept going and kept going. And now here it is 10 years later. And we did write, I think we're probably up to about 9,000 posts now. So for this book, I really did go through and read or at least scan every one of them. And, you know, a great many of them were totally horrible. And, you know, they were horrible then. And they certainly didn't stand the test of time. But we did find 132 posts that we thought did stand the test of time. And those are the ones that are in this book. So what I found interesting when I when I think back to when I first discovered the the blog is one of the first popular blogs where a lot of the posts were based on academic papers and oftentimes on economic theory papers which at least at the time for me was really unusual but there are these short you know uh, uh, sometimes snarky uh, sometimes quick witted uh, takes on what the uh, those theories in the in the paper espoused is that really the, the the basis that you were aiming for that you would have this uh, tie to academic papers and then just uh, translate it for a popular audience? Uh, I would say that was definitely one of maybe four or five or six central missions, and I don't know if I can name exactly or you know. Um, categorize the other three or four or five. Um, but, you know, one of those would be certainly just to have fun. You know, it was we just found that being able to write on that very loose a la carte basis um, about any and everything was really fun, especially if we'd written something in the book about baby names or crime or teacher cheating or sumo wrestling or whatever. And then something came up in the news about that. Then it was really fun to just kind of extend it to kind of keep the conversation going. But then, yes, definitely another big function of the blog was it was a really nice platform to discuss interesting academic work that was coming out. And, you know, 
it was very different on the blog. Rather than in, in a book, you take the academic paper as a kind of jumping off point. Then you obviously you read it carefully and you analyze it or reanalyze it. Then you try to develop some of the themes in it and bring it to life with writing. Often on the blog, we use it as a kind of wire service to the public to tell them about academic work that was being done, usually economics, but sometimes psychology and others that we just thought was kind of in the spirit of Freakonomics, which is a very, very broad distinction and is and it's kind of hard to hard to really define. I think of it a little bit like the old Supreme Court justice definition of pornography. I, I don't know exactly what it is, but I know it when I see it. And so to us, we've always known what the spirit of Freakonomics is, and, but a lot of it is an internal compass. It's hard to, um, like I said, define exactly. But when we would spot something in the world or someone would send us a paper or a friend or a colleague would be working on something interesting, we would throw it up on the blog, as simple as that. So I want to get to some of my favorite examples that show up in the book. Uh, I had a friend in from the UK last night and we went to a bar and he leans over to me as the bartender's delivering our drinks. And he's asked me, uh, can you remind me about how tipping works here in the US? <laughs> and I was trying to explain how tipping works. And I hit that moment of awkwardness that you often cover about tipping. Uh, tipping is one of those topics that I think has been covered pretty extensively on the on the uh, blog overall. Um, I was hoping you could just relate some of the uh, some of your experiences on how you approach tipping. Well, I am personally of at least two minds about tipping. Um, one, on the one hand, I hate it because it kind of goes against everything that price theory and economics and even freakonomics argues in favor of, which is, you know, you want transparency in the world. You want to know how much something costs. And if you're telling me that I need to pay X dollars for some good or service or transaction, um, then, you know, that's fine. I can pay it if I want it and I don't have to pay it if I don't want it. If you now tell me that I have to pay X dollars, but then it might be nice if you give one tenth of X or one or, um, you know, or one fifth of X as an additional, um, you know, tip, additional payment to the person who's facilitating it. You know, part of me wants to say, well, if, is that the price or is that just an optional thing? And if it's kind of an optional thing, who decides you know, when and why. And if I decide no, does that hurt the feelings of the person? Does it hurt the livelihood of the person? Are they dependent on that? And so for all those reasons, tipping can be an extremely awkward and inefficient practice. On the other hand, when you live in, a, um, in an economy where it's become a standard thing and people rely on it, you don't want to short people. So I personally probably over tip um, a lot. I don't. I don't necessarily mean over tip by amount, but I probably tip a lot more people than are is necessary, just because I don't know. It, it seems like um, it seems the quote right thing to do. But you know, a lot of Freakonomics is about not dividing things into right or wrong. It's about figuring out what the incentives are and what makes people do something that we consider right or wrong. And tipping is one of these really uncomfortable, awkward gray areas. And, you know, immediately when you say, you know, we did an, an episode of Freakonomics Radio called Should Tipping Be Banned? And we explored all this, all these different wrinkles. And, and we talked to one academic who'd done a lot of research on it, on tipping and the practices thereof, who had some interesting findings related related to race and gender of servers and uh, customers and so on, mostly in restaurants. 
And one of his arguments was that because tipping, uh, because uh, minorities, especially African Americans, typically receive much, much smaller tips than whites, that you could argue that it's a purely discriminatory practice on, on that on that dimension, at least, and therefore it should be banned for that reason alone. So we kind of use that narrow argument to make a broader argument, which is, wouldn't it be better just to do away with this the way that a lot of other countries countries don't have it? And then, of course, you immediately get people saying, hey, I survive on tips. I work in a restaurant and, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent of my money comes from tips. The idea isn't that these people would have no money. The idea is that you bake into the price of something that you pay uh, the wage to cover the service, which would strike me as um, being more efficient all around and probably better for everybody, except you'd have to undo uh, a custom. And that's kind of what tipping in restaurants is. It's a custom. And this is something that we spot over and over and over again. And we write about on the blog and in this new book a lot, which is institutions or practices that come to be the way they are, the way we educate children, the way we give out health care, the way we tip in restaurants. These are kind of customs or, you know, practices often which are built on accidents of history. You know, somebody started something and it grew into something and it became accepted as the right thing to do. And then it's really hard to undo them, even if in retrospect, they don't make any sense at all. And so I, a lot of what I we- really felt that last night when I was trying to relay the the episode on on uh, banning tipping as we were trying to tip a bartender. It was an incredibly <laughs> awkward situation uh, and even more awkward to talk about it. And so I was, uh, I was just really stuck. I was in the middle of a Freakonomics episode, uh, and I, I, I think that's why that uh, Freakonomics has really been so successful is that it's innately relatable. All of these topics that you talk about, you you tend to pick things that are not necessarily the biggest macro issues. Is that intentional? Well, I think for two reasons. One is we tend to do things that we are personally interested in, and I guess neither of us are big thinkers. And two is the big macro issues, whether it's geopolitics or macroeconomy or the healthcare system in in writ large, those are really hard. Uh, if we could swoop in and use some, you know, freakonomics shaded glasses to look at these things and just figure out, oh, well, if you just, you know, move this wire over here and put this plug in here, everything will be fixed. Of course we do that. We're we're just as eager to solve big problems as anybody, but I guess we're not very good at it. And so we tend to stick to small ones, which are often the things you see um, right in front of you. Um, you know, we have written about bigger scenarios. Crime is a, a big one because there's so many inputs and quite a few outputs. Um, We've written about parenting and, and education and healthcare to some degree, but typically we would peel off one or two small pieces of that because the way that we try to make arguments is not based on what we think should be or ideology or dogma or a political position. It's based on data, and it's a lot easier to get data in one small realm that you can be really confident in and work with rather than trying to gather all the data for an entire huge, huge, huge enterprise, which is um, going to be a lot harder to work with. Even though most of the posts revolve around data and and uh, different findings and interpretations of that data, there is a lot of people that are not fond of the conclusions that you sometimes reach, or even the questions you pose. Um, and 
that comes through really clearly in the book when you uh, talk about some of the posts on uh, environmental topics, uh, how the Endangered Species Act hasn't, how not many creatures have come off the Endangered Species Act, which um, was sort of an eye-opening post, I recall. And then uh, the one that really stuck with me about how eat, eating locally may not be so great for us. Yeah, it might be. It might be great for you nutritionally. Might not be. Also, uh, might be great for you psychically. Um, but in terms of environmental impact, you know, that's kind of one of the that has traditionally been one of the big arguments of the the local food or farm to table movement, which is why on earth wouldn't you want to buy all your food when it's been locally grown? Because that would seem to be so much more environmentally friendly. And and it would seem to be if you if you think about it. You know, if I want to buy some grapes, I live in New York City. If I want to buy some grapes that live um where I where I live, wouldn't I much rather buy some grapes that are grown in, you know, Chatham, somewhere in Ulster County or I don't know, Albany County, Ulster County, New York, rather than coming in from Chile on a ship. And that would seem to make a lot of sense until you do the math. And when you do the math, you find out that we move stuff really, really well and cheaply. And cheaply implies without a whole lot of ec- ecological impact because, you know, shipping something on a, a freighter or on a, a on a freight ship across an ocean is actually pretty cheap and um, and doesn't doesn't use a lot of fuel per item of food compared to, you know, some truck coming in with um, a few barrels or bushels of grapes from upstate New York. So the people who've done the math on that find that, um, A, the bulk of the carbon footprint that's associated with agriculture is in the uh, growing part, not the transportation part. And so transportation doesn't necessarily play that big a role. So yeah, um, if you want to eat local food because you think it's an awesome thing to do and you're willing to eat only the things that are available to you locally given where you live and time of year and so on – then you should do it. Absolutely. Um, but you shouldn't um, necessarily think that it's making a, a big environmental environmental impact for the positive, if at all. And in fact, you know, it's the more I think about it, I was just in um, you're you're in you're in San Francisco, Kishore. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in San Francisco. Yeah, I, I was in well, I was in Palo Alto a couple of days ago and I realized um, then how often the local food argument I hear and the farm-to-table argument I hear kind of from an intellectual standpoint comes out of that region, which makes sense because, man, you are, you can get any food there almost any time of year. It's a great place to live if you like to eat a lot of different kinds of food that are grown locally. If you live in New York City, New York State, Kansas, um, Canada, you know, that means you have a very, very limited um, ability to eat w- what you want when you want. Now, you could say, well, people should limit their stuff to then and they should eat potatoes during the winter. Damn it. That's the way, you know, humankind evolved. Um, that's that's a perfectly legitimate argument to make if you want to make that argument. Um, but most people don't really want to live like that. So that's not a very popular position, let alone in San Francisco uh, and in uh when you compare it to New York and other areas across this country, how is the perception of some of these topics uh, manifested themselves? I'm sure you get lots of hate mail. I'm sure you get lots of uh, interesting comments. Uh, how has that been? Yeah, I don't know. We kind of enjoy getting pushback. Um, we don't really get much hate. We get very little what you typically call hate mail. Um 
There have been topics in the past where you'd occasionally get one or two or three people writing and saying, you know, you are uh, a blank and you deserve to blank. Um, but not very much of that. We find that most of the pushback is of two varieties. One is ideological. So if you write – if if you kind of um, pull the tail of some sacred cow, whether it's – environmentalism or some healthcare idea or some education idea, you will definitely get uh, a bunch of people who uh, uh, are affiliated with or aligned with or have priors that support that idea, and they'll tell you why you're wrong. And sometimes they'll argue the evidence and sometimes they don't. When they do, it's it's really fun to go back and forth because um, we're obviously always trying to you know, make good arguments. And if we if we learn by being wrong, we jump right out and say so and so on. And then there are um, then there's a different kind of argument, uh, a different kind of pushback, which is I don't think that this topic is appropriate to be discussed in public. And uh, I, I understand that why people make that, uh, you know, there's a post in in When to Rob a Bank it starts off the first chapter, actually. Levitt wrote this post. It was basically called, If You Were a Terrorist, How Would You Attack? And he's basically saying, you know, it would probably be really helpful to flush out a lot of ideas so that the people who are trying to keep us safe can, you know, just in case they haven't come across these ideas or thought of them themselves, run them up the flagpole and see how they can address them. So as Rational as that might sound the way I just explained it, a lot of people didn't think it made sense at all. And they said, what kind of pure blood idiot are you to even suggest something like that? So I'd say that's probably, uh, you know, that's the that's the other category of blowback we get. But, um, you know, look, it is partly because we've gotten prominent and also partly because we all live in an age where you can disseminate your ideas easily. I think it's a real privilege to be able to do that. Has that experience given you any pause on approaching certain topics now? I can't think of anything we ever didn't write about because we were worried that some people would get upset. Uh, we definitely, when we write about topics that we anticipate might make some people uneasy for various reasons, either ideology or whatever, we definitely try our best to build the argument in a way that doesn't uh, needlessly provoke I, I very much gather that from the from the writing style, but what I'm reminded of in you bringing up the terrorist uh, post example is uh, something from your previous book, Think Like a Freak, where you talk about if you're going to approach problems in this freakonomic way, uh, that you need to sometimes put away your moral compass and uh, put away how you... Uh, your own sort of personal ideological views on a topic in order to uh, approach it in this method. Is that something you hope people garner when you uh, tackle subjects like this? I guess so. But we also recognize it's really hard. Um, you know, I almost think my I, my kids now are 13 and 14, and it's just been really interesting to watch them you know, go from zero to that at the same time that I've gone from whatever, 35 up. And you realize that there are these different points in time in your in your life based on your age and experience and education and whatnot, where you go from kind of knowing very, very, very little about almost anything to acquiring a whole, whole, whole lot of knowledge 
to starting to form some priors, to getting really attached to your priors, to getting so attached to your priors that they, you don't even recognize that they're priors anymore, to then having the ability and authority as an adult to act on your priors, but now you don't even recognize that your priors are not um, homogenous, that you don't even realize that you know my beliefs, my preferences are, if not unique to me, at least they're certainly not universal. And that whole process of how we think how how we think about what we know and how we think we know much more than we do is a really interesting one to me but as a writer what it does i feel or at least the way i what it, what i feel it does for me is it makes me i don't know if humble's the right word because i probably don't sound very humble when i'm describing it but it, it makes me feel like i want to be humble when i write about something and to not pretend even for a minute that i or anyone for that matter but i am the ultimate authority on anything and so you try to present an argument where you present evidence, you present counter evidence, you try to shoot down your own argument. You know, I, it's one of the things I've always liked about economics papers more than papers in other disciplines is for whatever reason, there is this kind of um, pattern in economics papers where when you make your argument and then you say, here's how I'm going to try to prove it. The next thing you always do is say, and here's why I might be wrong. Here are five factors that if true could disprove my argument. Then you go through those five factors and show that indeed they're not disproving my argument. But I, I think that's a really good practice that we should all engage in to try to, you know, at least leaven our own certainty about things because certainty is really um, dangerous. You talk about this a lot and it comes through in your in your writing and your show is that you both seem comfortable uh, with saying I don't know or having an I don't know message come through to the audience, which seems like a very difficult a place to be when you're both in the business of education and entertainment. Well, I don't know. Um, there, I just did it. Um, <laughs> it's I, easy for you to say I don't yeah, know. I, I think it's very difficult I don't to think say I don't know. I don't think it's so hard. I don't I, – I get why it's hard for a lot of people. But look, what I do for a living and what Levitt does for a living, if we knew <laughs> everything – we wouldn't have a job, right? So as a journalist, literally my job is to find people who know stuff that I don't know and ask them to explain it. That's literally my job. So literally, if I couldn't say to someone, you know, this thing you're trying to build or this show you're trying to make or this idea you're trying to develop, uh, it sounds interesting, but I don't understand uh, exactly what it is or how it works or what it's meant to accomplish. Can you explain that for me? I mean, that's that's basically all I do. And then, you know, then I then they say, let's say they say 100 words. I try to pick out the 20 words that are most important and then attach them to the next 20 words that are most important. That's all I do is ask people who know stuff that I don't know to explain it. And Levitt, as an academic, you know, he's a PhD economist. So maybe his Lines of inquiry are more sophisticated than mine, um, although, you know, sometimes it's like sitting down and watching every episode of a quiz show for the past 20 years and trying and writing down the gender and race of every contestant and then trying to add up who's more cooperative to which uh, other kind of person in that and to try to establish some kind of bias. So. I don't know if that's necessarily more sophisticated. It's maybe more, you know, it gets in, it gets, it involves some more math, but he's not even really that mathy. So basically, both of what we do are built on the need to acknowledge that you don't know something. And honestly, I'll be honest with you. I, uh, that was very redundant, wasn't it? Honestly, I'll be honest with you. Um, 
I do not enjoy, this is just a personal preference, I do not enjoy spending time with people who see, who speak as if they are so certain about everything they say, which is why as much as I love sports, for instance, it's really hard <laughs> to listen to sports talk radio because on sports talk radio and other talk radio too, political talk radio, everybody who opens his or her mouth is certain that they know exactly, you know, if the Yankees want to win 100 games this year, here's what they got to do. It's really? You you know that? <laughs> so um, so I have a hard time listening to that. I, I love being around people who are as stupefied as I am. <laughs> I, Ten years in, how has your relationship with Levitt evolved? Uh, you've had this kind of strange pairing in a in a sense you you don't live in the same city and you come from very varied backgrounds uh i'm curious how it is uh, changed and continues to feed into the the stories that we love to hear yeah so i think because we live in different cities it's really great um it's like a you know it's like a long distance office marriage where you know I think he probably gets more sick of me than I of him because I press gang him into more things than he does me. So with Freakonomics Radio, for instance, that was my that was just something I wanted to do. I got bored one day and I thought it'd be fun to start a radio public radio show and a podcast. And and he said, God, that is the stupidest idea you've ever had. And uh, but he he, uh, you know, when I want to interview him for the show, he always makes time to do that. So that's nice. You know, we're both really busy doing a lot of different things, many of which intersect and some of which don't. Um, so it just it just works out great. I mean, my my big my biggest problem with him is that he's a, still a much, 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 much better golfer than I am. And even though he's been good, he's been playing since he was a kid. So he's been good a long time and I've been trying to catch up. So even though I deserve to be a lot worse because I've only started playing re for real the last few years, I um, I can't forgive him. It, it's frustrating. It's frustrating for him to be so much better. So if he were to have some kind of mental uh, tsunami that rewired his swing and made it a little bit more like an average golfer like me, I would mourn for him a little bit, but inside I would mostly celebrate. Hopefully that turns into a story down the road. <laughs> Looking back over the over the decade, do you have stories that have really stuck with you or just personally been favorites? I think my favorite story, honestly, is um, – I mean, I, I have a lot. It's hard – depending on what day you'd ask me, I'd probably tell you a different one. But one that resonates for me and for Levitt a lot uh, at the – for the last couple years is we did uh, – it, it, it began as a radio show – slash podcast, but we'd been kind of sniffing around it in our writing for a while, and it was called The Upside of Quitting. And then when we wrote Think Like a Freak, we kind of developed it in a, in a as a chapter, as the final chapter of that book, for, for in, a, in a slightly different um, way, and we extended it a little bit. And I just really loved this idea. And the reason I loved it is that it's a, to me, it's a really great use of applying economic insight to real life. And in this case, real life being the fact that so many of us are doing things that we stick with because we're told from childhood that quitting is a really, really bad thing and, and it's a 
It's kind of almost a, a moral failure to quit something before it's completed. And and But if you apply a little bit of economic thinking into that notion, you think, well, wait a minute. What about opportunity cost, right? What about the fact that if I'm spending one hour doing this thing that I really don't believe in anymore, I'm not good at, or I don't like, or it's maybe hurting other people, including myself, what else could I do with that hour that might be more productive? Um, then you also run into sunk costs and the sunk cost fallacy, the idea that because I've invested a lot of time or money in something, the only right thing to do is to keep going. And so we just kind of took that fearful thinking that you should never quit and, and flipped it on its head and wrote about it and talked about it in a way that led a lot of people to quit stuff. Um, sometimes people you know, would quit a job and go back to grad school. Sometimes they'd quit grad school and take a job. They would sometimes someone who'd been running for 20 years because they'd been really good in high school quit because they realized they didn't really love it. They did it because it was a, a habit and a pattern. And all of a sudden, with all that time, they were doing other things. Sometimes people would quit a relationship or a project or whatever. And to me, that was of all the stuff that we've done that was that's been really, I guess, rewarding to hear from people about the impact. I'd say that might be that might be number one. Number two might be the fact that uh, more expensive wine does not taste better than cheap wine to almost everybody on the earth, which I find uh, is a very liberating message for everybody except the people who sell expensive wine for a living. <laughs> Going back to quitting, I actually use the Freakonomics experiment website where you essentially flip a virtual coin for people. Uh, I had a project a couple months ago, and I couldn't decide if I wanted to move forward or not. So I added in a question there that was, uh, should I quit this project and had um, uh, you guys decide for me? And and it told me to quit, and I ended up quitting it. Oh, you did? It was, it was actually pretty liberating. Interesting. Now, let me ask you a question. When, when the coin came up uh, heads for quit, what was your immediate emotional response? I did the best two of three option, and uh, I was relieved, yeah. to to be honest. Yeah. I think I wanted to quit right. and just wasn't allowing myself to. See, I think that's the key, and that and that's something we hear from so many people, which is, like, let's say you didn't want to quit, and it came up two out of three in favor of quitting, you would have felt anguished, and that might have been the answer for you, to overrule the coin flip. But it's like the coin flip just kind of momentarily... Um, you know, allows you to to realize what your true feelings are about it. Um, it's like, you know, you can ask me if uh, do you want to see this certain friend or do you want to do this certain thing with some people tomorrow? And I'll give you an answer depending on what I think, you know, what I think at the moment, what I think you want me to say and so on. But then when I, when that email pops up, in my inbox from them saying, hey, this is the thing we're going to do. In that split second that I see their name in the subject line, that's the real thing. That's my true preference. And so a lot of it is just trying to figure out what your actual preferences are and not what you tell yourself your preference is based on all the conditioning and, and context and all. That said, you know, we're not, we're not telling everybody they should quit everything all the time and just sit on the couch and eat Cheetos and that should be your life. But it's about quitting something productively and strategically to accomplish something different that makes you happier. So turning that question back on to you, you've been at this a decade. Have you thought about uh, the quitting the Freakonomics or bringing it to a close or uh, 
or just moving on in any capacity? Yeah, we've thought about it a lot. I mean, we we kind of quit after every book, but then decided after like a year or so that we wanted to do another one. Because after even after the first book, we decided right after that we probably wouldn't do another just because we never planned to be a, you know, long-time partnership. And, um, you know, the first book did so, so, so well, way better than we could have ever thought that we thought we don't want to jinx it or, you know, tempt fate. So we didn't start work on Super Freakonomics for at least, I think, a year after. And then it took another three or four years to do it. And same thing for Think Like a Freak. We weren't planning on doing um, that third one. So for right now, it's hard to say. Um, I I know one thing that I'm committed to doing for the foreseeable future is the Freakonomics Radio podcast just because it's really fun. And unlike a book, which is a big, 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 long gestation project that you have to really commit to, then invest a lot of time in before there's any kind of, um, you know, action on it. Uh, a podcast, our podcast at least, is a weekly. And therefore, it, it is. it does go back to my times of um, working in journalism. You know, I, was, uh, I used to work at the New York Times Magazine, which a magazine, I just loved the magazine. And it came out weekly. And I think it was the only weekly magazine in America that was truly weekly. We didn't take a week off. We never did any double issues, no holiday week off. And uh, there's something really thrilling as a writer, as a journalist, to have that platform to be able to speak to people, to reach people on a regular basis like that. So with Freakonomics Radio, I love it. And even though it was born of an accident, it's become popular and we have a big audience and they they like it. And so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to stop communicating with them and, and hearing from them. So that part of Freakonomics I know is going to live on at least for a while. Um, we're certainly working toward further books, but... You know, we try a lot of things that fail, so I don't know how how it's all going to work out. And then we're doing – we're both doing other projects. Levitt has a consulting firm called TGG, which he spends a lot of time with. I'm getting into some more uh, radio and podcasting. I have some different ideas that are kind of offshoots of Freakonomics. So not quitting yet, but maybe changing tack a little. And any questions or guests coming up on the radio podcast that are really exciting for you? So, yeah. the So the podcast that we're working on right now, uh, let me see. We're working on something with um, about the downtown project in Las Vegas with where Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, has invested $350 million to kind of make a sort of a Brooklyn or Austin in the middle of downtown Vegas off the Strip which is a really fun episode. It's kind of about what makes a city a city. We're working on something on the economics of sleep. We are doing a really nice piece with Al Roth, who's a a wonderfully interesting economist who's not really an economist. He's a PhD engineer, but he won a Nobel in economics a couple years ago for what's called market design, which is finding, you know, designing markets better when money doesn't do the job. So like for people who want to donate organs and receive them, for medical residents who want to find the right hospital to match in or high school students who want to find the right high school. So this is a guy who's figured out all kinds, who's basically writes algorithms to match people better. Um, We're working on a really, there's a cool paper about suspense. Boy, I just, I just realized I'm giving away all our ideas here. So anybody wants to make a podcast and (laughs) we can edit some of this. (laughs) That's okay. Uh, We're working on something about um, suspense and surprise and how to maximize them 
in storytelling, which sounds like a purely non-economic thing, but it was actually it's actually based on a paper written by some economists who went through and analyzed optimal suspense and uh, surprise strategies. So um, yeah, so that's what I'm working on, and I, I hope that from those descriptions you can glean why I want to keep doing it. It's just fun. On that happy note, I think we'll <laughs> we'll call it an interview. Uh, Stephen Dubner, thank you for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Kishore. I appreciate it. That was a really interesting interview. I love listening to Stephen Dubner, and uh, I love the Freakonomics podcast. And I think one of the reasons that I love it is because it gives you these little tidbits of information that you can then take to a dinner party or what have you, or just, you know, gives you a, a little boost of interest. But I like how honest he was about, we're not really that smart, so we want to cover small problems because big problems are too difficult. <laughs> um, I mean, I, you know, I, I would disagree with the we're not that smart part of that comment. Um, but I, I wonder, though, ultimately, what the big effect is, you know, in terms of narrowing into some of these little issues. So I guess one of the things that I find a little bit troubling is that you can always you can find a study that shows almost anything. But science and the way it progresses is really about multitude, a multitude of studies, right? You want to have find converging evidence before you declare something a fact. And one study might give you one piece of evidence, but it's not enough to, you know, declare that something is a fact most of the time. My my take on it, and I'm sure I'm gonna get some listener feedback on this, is that there's more disagreement in economic academic papers than there is in scientific papers. There isn't like economic consensus in the same way that we talk about it, especially on these micro issues where it's really hard to take into account all of the different effects. I think they come to uh, some conclusions, but taking those micro conclusions and translating them to a macro environment, that's where it gets really tricky. And where they actually operate is this place in between where they try to relate some interesting facts from a different angle, uh, solving problems in a micro world. Uh, but the listeners of their show, and uh, not the hardcore listeners, but the casual listeners, sometimes try to apply that to macro situations where you can't. So people are actually naming their babies differently because of that, that episode where the takeaway was really, uh, no, it's not really the name that you give. It's where they grow up and the situation they're in. And babies are a correlative effect. But I take your point that it's hard to always trust uh, um, uh, conclusions based off one study or just a small set of studies and how difficult that is. But how else do you make economics interesting? <laughs> Especially, I, that, I mean, that's a bold statement. I mean, economics is about people, and I think people are interesting. So I think that it can always be interesting. The question is, I think, more along the lines of, you know, how can we take that interesting fact and really be sure that it represents some kind of universal truth, uh, which really is the science uh, job of of economics. And, you know, I, I don't know to what extent there's an overlap between the current way that, you know, the field of economics is running and how we think of the scientific method. And I think that that's, that's one thing that, you know, we even talked about when we were discussing about having Dubner on the show, you know, is he really a scientist? Is this is a science-based podcast? You know, how, how much overlap really is there with what he does and with what, you know, we are generally interested in, which is based in science. And I think that question is still kind of out there. Um, and, you know, I, I, I almost 
wonder if it isn't time, and maybe someone's already done this, for a reproducibility project in the field of economics. Oh, that does not sound like fun to me. <laughs> that sounds like a ton of work. But I do give them uh, a lot of props. It's an entertaining show. It's one of the ones I listen to on a weekly basis. They also tackle harder topics than some other shows do in this space. From an academic perspective, they did a show on terrorism, really sort of using um, statistics to undermine how we have approached as a country um, our um, our solutions to securing our borders and and coming up with methods to keep us safe on airplanes. That's not something that you hear uh, scientists talk about, but it is an implication of of the academic work that's coming out of these fields. Uh, so I, I say bravo to them, and I hope they continue asking strange sideways questions on on issues that we've sort of seemingly have been settled on. Mm -hmm. Well, they've been around for 10 years, and so presumably they've already picked all the low-hanging fruit, and so now they're going to have to start tackling some of the deeper, more difficult questions. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this episode is sponsored by Privlo. Can't get a mortgage because you're self-employed? Make an uneven income or have an old credit blemish? Well, there's a new lender in town and they built a business to help you. Privlo knows that your finances are as unique as your fingerprints, and unlike regular lenders, they take a holistic view of your entire financial picture to see if you qualify for a mortgage. Apply online at privlo.com slash podcast and fill out a simple online form. You'll have a decision in hours. That's privlo.com slash podcast. And this episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by serial quitter Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre This. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.